My name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm director of public programs here. It is indeed my pleasure to welcome you to the Hirschhorn tonight for a lecture by Susan Lake, Hirschhorn's chief conservator, who will be speaking about William de Kooning. Susan's recent book, which we can see here, and it's available also there, and she will sign, is a first systematic study of the painter's creative process that uses a scientific examination of his pigments, binders, and supports to inform art historical interpretations. I also would like to draw your attention to our, our, our magazine, so please pick it up because you can find about our future programs. And I'd like again to draw attention to one of the programs that is coming up, and it's a Sundance award-winning documentary, Wasteland, featuring Brazilian-born, Brooklyn-based artist Vic Munoz. It's very interesting. It'll be shown this coming Thursday, November 18th, in the auditorium. Before I introduce Susan, I'd like to say thank you to Kevin Hall from Programs Department, and Sarah Gordon from Exhibitions who helped to set up this evening and make all of the technical equipment possible. Please, I'd like to ask you to turn off your cell phones because they are quite disruptive. I know we need to connect with the rest of the world, but maybe we don't have to for about an hour. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Now let me do a little introduction for Susan. Uh, Susan earned her PhD at the University of Delaware, where her dissertation focused on the relationship between style and technical procedure in the decoding paintings of the 1940s and 1960s. Her book, William de Kooning, The Artist's Materials, is an expansion on her dissertation and was published this year by the Getty Conservation Institute. Her study was catalyzed by two major de Kooning exhibitions. The first one at the Hirschhorn Museum and the second at the National Gallery. Many of the works that Susan will discuss tonight are in the Hirschhorn's extensive collection. Susan Books was praised in several reviews, particularly artinfo.com and the New Republic. In the New Republic, Jed Pearl noted, Lake brings a scrupulous intelligence to her account of the mysteries of de Kooning's studio practice. I think we will learn a lot this evening. Susan, help me to welcome her here. Thank you all for um, coming out tonight, especially uh, given the inclement weather. And thank you, Malena and Jed Pearl. Um, Willing de Kooning, the artist's materials as Milena's 1940s um, through the 1960s. It's the first systematic study of de Kooning's creative process that integrates um, an in-depth examination of these paintings with a scientific analysis um, correlated with art historical references. Many of the works that I analyzed um, come from public and private collections in the United States as uh, well as in Europe. But the majority of the works that were um, analyzed and examined in depth come from the Hirschhorn collection. Few repositories um, can rival the Hirschhorn collection in scope and in size. 
access to these works provided a unique opportunity to better understand the artist's working methods and his motivations as they evolved over time. In a broad sense, this research project attempts to determine the degree to which the artist's importance shifts in style correspond to a change in his technical procedures. I hope to show that de Kooning varied his practice from one painting to another by choosing one type of paint, by altering that particular paint in the way it was applied. And this is evidence of conscious artistic choice and deliberate innovation. Um, in the book, I analyzed 25 paintings. I'm going to spare you and talk about just three. And um, all of these, the one, um, in, I chose them in large part because they're um, on display in the adjacent galleries. I will first talk about Queen of Hearts, which is a transitional work, and um, then Woman 1948. Though it was painted in the last years of the 1940s, it's very representative of a lot of the work that de Kooning did in the 50s, specifically his women's series. And we'll end with Woman's Take Harbor, um, 1964, which typifies uh, work, de Kooning's works of the 60s. De Kooning is uh, one of the major painters of the 20th century. He belongs to a community of artists um, that radically transformed American art um, around um, the time of the, during the time of the World War II and immediately afterwards. Abstract Expressionism, or the New York School, as the um, movement is um, alternative been called, consisted of a um, loosely bound group of artists who in the 1940s radically transformed um, American painting and developed their, by developing their own individual styles. What this diverse group has in common was a shared belief that a work of art need not illustrate or narrate to um, be an effective means of um, expression. In a now famous statement, Jackson Pollock um, observed that a painting had a life of its own that comes through by means of the materials. This succinct statement um, expressed most of these artists' convictions that um, the materials and methods of their application could serve as expressive agents um, that uh, had the power to convey um, content or message. And de Kooning is in the top left. To an extent rare among the abstract expressionist painters, de Kooning was inspired by the circumstances of his everyday life. Over the years, scholars have identified um, various possible sources for his imagery and style, ranging from old master paintings to Picasso um, to uh, popular imagery or um, commercial advertisements. But, and while these connections make sense, um, aesthetically, non-artistic um, influences were equally profound. The artist himself repeat, repeatedly acknowledged that he was interested in the common, often tawdry um, details of American life, and that his immediate surroundings had a profound influence on his work. In 1926, he emigrated from Rotterdam to New York City, and during the late 40s and 50s, the gritty ambiance of Manhattan became a source of inspiration for his work. In 1963, he moved permanently to Springs, Long Island, and that environment, surrounded by water and light, uh, formed the basis for his new paintings. 
Unlike most of the American abstract expressionist painters, de Kooning brought to his craft a rigorous um, European training. In his native Netherlands, he attended the Rotterdam Academy and apprenticed at a commercial design and decorating firm. Once he arrived in the States, he supported himself when times were hard as a house painter, and he took on a variety of commercial art jobs, including working as a sign painter and um, decorating storefronts for department stores. Both his training and his work experience gave him a respect for materials and skilled craftsmanship that was a fundamental influence upon his art throughout his career. Queen of Hearts is executed on a sheet of masonite. It was painted over a three-year period between 1943 and 1946. As I said earlier, it's an important transitional work that retains evidence of de Kooning's traditional training, as it also makes a conscious break with established pictorial convention. The subject, a three-quarter length seated figure, represents de Kooning's earliest temp attempts to reinterpret the traditional female figure in um, a relatively abstract mode. Although much of this work suggests a rather spontaneous execution, the artist, in fact, followed traditional practice in his reliance on a preparatory drawing to develop his composition. Seated Woman, a pencil drawing, um, served as the study for Queen of Hearts, and the disjointed fragmentation of the seated figure in the painting is already conceived first in the study. Um, although de Kooning was, uh, was painted, as I said, over a three-year period, it shows little evidence of um, extended reworking that's so characteristic of many of his later paintings. Nonetheless, de Kooning arrived at the final color scheme of the painting only after making significant revisions. This cross-section, and I'm going to explain that a cross-section actually is for the non-conservators and technical art historians here, that um, it's a small flake of paint, usually smaller than a, a period at the end of a sentence, that is embedded in resin, ground down and polished, so you have an idea of the layer structure. And you can also um, identify the pigments in relationship to that layer structure. Anyway, this cross-section um, shows that the artist applied a white ground to um, the masonite panel, and he chose the smooth side of the masonite panel. The ground is gypsum, a very traditional ground mixed with hide glue, and sanded to a smooth finish. Over the ground and the preliminary ink, um, drawing, de Kooning blocked in colored rectangles um, around the reserve of the figure. He left the area of the figure um, uh, unpainted. And then he worked up the background in a succession of different colored paints. First, he applied two layers of yellow. You, um, I must say that a lot of these um, slides, um, images are scanned from sides, so you, the resolution is not great. But anyway, there are two layers of yellow, followed by a pink-orange, and finally, the artist settled on the blue-green of the upper layer. In this cross-section and others taken um, in various other areas of the painting, um, we recognize that de Kooning worked on the background over an extended period of time, building up the paint layers in distinct layers, and only after the previous layer had, had dried. You would see an intermingling between the layers were the um, lower layers not yet um, set. Um, 
I'm always hesitant to, uh, to, sh to show um, chromatograms, but um, until the late 1940s, the surfaces of de Kooning's paintings are generally quite smooth and somewhat glossy. And his choice of paints was one factor in achieving the very smooth surfaces he sought. The relative amounts of saturated acids uh, that you see in this pyrogram, and a pyrogram is a thermal disassociation of molecules, and you can, by identifying those, those parts, you can identify what the compound is. Um, we know um, that this, uh, the binding media of this paint is um, a drying oil, probably linseed oil, um, one of the most common of artist's oils. And the identity of the medium, in conjunction with the identity of the pigments that I showed you earlier, strongly indicates that the paints of this work are traditional artist's oil paints. Fine circular striations in the green and blue rectangles, and it's restricted to the background. Behind the um, woman indicate that the artist enhanced the already smooth brush-applied surfaces of his oil paint by rubbing them with pumice or fine grit sandpaper. De, Kooning, De Kooning's careful preparation of these paint surfaces is an example of a, his adaptation of commercial methods to his studio practice. Um, sign painters, and de Kooning always expressed his admiration for the bold statements made by sign painters, who desired a highly polished background on which to apply their lettering, generally rubbed down their surfaces with lump um, pumice and water to remove all of the brush strokes, after which they gave the painting a varnish. De Kooning painted the figure, as I said, only after he had painted the background. And this area gives evidence of a very different approach to working, one in which conventional techniques are ignored for a more immediate handling of the materials. The artist rendered the head and neck of the uh, woman with a broad, sharp blade, um, probably a metal scraper. With this tool, he applied a um, layer of white lead paint directly onto the white ground, overlapping the edges of the surrounding green and blue background. As he worked on the woman's head, he pivoted the blade to form her profile, her weak chin, and her neck. Um, and notice he lifted and, and reset that blade several times uh, as, he, as he pulled the paint down the neck, and then he finally um, applied a layer, a translucent layer of pink paint with a brush that gives the woman uh, skin its translucent quality. Likewise, the woman's yellow dress reveals none of the careful buildup of um, distinct paint layers that's characteristic of the background. In this photomicrograph, um, you see the extent to which the artist scored the still soft paint with a um, stick of charcoal. And then this cross-section, you, you see nothing what you, as you saw in the background. Rather, um, you see the extent to which um, the, or the degree to which the artist worked the charcoal fibers from dense scribbles into the dilute wash of yellow paint. The visible network of charcoal lines that partially contour the figure's various body parts and scrawl through the paint surfaces has a very different function from the largely invisible underdrawing that was a preliminary guide for the work. These lines suggest multiple and alternative positions for the figure's eyes, legs, shoulders, and breasts. 
As such, they imply that de Kooning's working method involved early but still re um, visible revisions to his composition, with each body part drawn in charcoal, painted, redrawn, and then repainted. The woman's faint upper set of eyes above the almond-shaped ones, for example, initially appear, appear to be a, an abandoned set um, and exist below the pink upper paint layer. This, um, these original eyes bear a very close resemblance to the in shape and position to um, the, an ink drawing head of a woman that was actually a study for this painting in progress. It's therefore tempting to, post, um, to postulate that de Kooning created this face, um, especially the eyes, at an early um, state of the work and then painted them out and they're now partially visible in the increasingly translucent uh, oil paint as pedimenti. In fact, both sets of eyes are inscribed directly into the upper pink layer. The upper ones simply smudge to reduce their prominence. Likewise, when de Kooning rendered the multiple ovals of the female's breasts, all these lines, with the exception of the most upper one, exist directly on the surface of the yellow paint. As he worked, de Kooning moved the breasts downward, but overtly retained evidence of earlier versions. De Kooning's act of allowing his alterations to show whether they be um, charcoal or roughly brushed and scraped on paints was a deliberate device meant um, to manifest the physical process that brought, that, that brought the work into being. As such, they herald the direction of modern and specifically abstract expressionist emphasis on the picture surface and the methods that go into its construction. Beginning in the late 1940s, the surfaces of de Kooning's paintings gradually evolved from the smoothness of Queen of Hearts toward the much more rugged impasto characteristic of the paintings of the 1950s. Like Queen of Hearts, Woman 1940 is a female uh, figure, but it is now composed of swiftly applied brush strokes that aggressively um, distort um, as they also define the subject. This distortion of the figure, and if you look at the painting when you go in the adjacent room, it is really, frankly, messy methods of application. They, the work appears to deliberately crude and almost intuitive in its handling. Close examination of the picture, however, shows that de Kooning worked on this painting in several stages, and he selected and exploited his paints to underscore his imagery. Although no preparatory drawing exists for, Queen, um, for Woman 48, a piece of masking tape on the surface as well as the rippled impasto peaks that you see throughout the work indicate that de Kooning created the fragmented, disjointed figure in a working method that now involves superimposing his drawings and sketches on the painting in progress. This uh, 1946 uh, photograph illustrates de Kooning's working method. You can see a drawing taped, uh, uh, drawing the torso of a woman taped to a painting in, um, that de Kooning was working on. By layering his drawings or torn fragments of them, he could continually um, discover unforeseen, unforeseen new images that he eventually incorporated into his painting. At first glance, woman seems to have been done in one sitting with colors blended on the um, surface wet into wet. 
And in fact, much of what we see was probably painted at great speed and in fact in spurts of feverish activity. Close examination of the surface, however, indicates, especially the upper half of the painting, that de Kooning was already working in a well-established pattern of applying and then partially scraping down his paints. At Woman 48, he scraped and probably sanded much of the area in gray that you see in this um, detail. But especially in the recessed area of the star in the upper left corner, you can see the lower composition in black and white that, was, um, that served as part of an initial black and white composition, but now is part of the um, final, final work. This cross-section taken from near the um, woman's skirt um, confirms, and I, there are other cross-sections as well, that the colored paints around the figure, as well as the whites that define her form as, and the star in the upper left corner, were added only in the final stages of the painting's composition. Moreover, these upper paints were added only after the lower paint was dry. The artist's practice of working on paintings over an extended period of time and his willingness to modify his paintings in considered stages indicates an element of deliberation that seems to belie the spontaneity implied in the word action painting. Yet even critic Harold Rosenberg, who coined the phrase, acknowledged later in his career that de Kooning never used improv improvisational techniques exclusively. Like many works of um, the 1940s and 50s, Woman is really remarkable, as I said, for its emphatic surface texture. Examination of this painting and others of the period, combined with pigment and medium identification, reveals that the artist deliberately chose materials and manipulated his paints to enhance textural contrasts. Like Queen of Hearts, Woman is executed on a piece of masonite, but in this case, the artist selected the rough side of the fiberboard panel, and he did not apply a priming or a ground layer to it. As a result, the prominent screen pattern of the particle board is readily, readily visible throughout most of the painting. A chromatogram of a sample of the pink paint indicates that this is a house paint. The ratio of peaks early in the run are typical for a drying oil. The latter part of the chromatogram shows a large peak that has been identified as pine resin, often called rosin or colophony. Such a mixture, a drying oil with resin from a conifer, was sold by the commercial paint interest industry as an inexpensive um, enamel house paint. De Kooning's use of colored um, house paints in this work and others um, contradicts critic Thomas Hess's statement that de Kooning's art of this period, with few exceptions, were um, conventional artist oils um, simply applied in different and unconventional ways. This paint cross-section taken from um, the bottom edge and microscopic examination of the upper paint surfaces show that the arted, artist introduced coarse granular materials into his house paint to accentuate the already rough texture of the support and the crude nature of his inexpensive paints. In this work, uh, he blended quartz, probably small pebbles, into the gray paints. And as you can see this, see it in the photomicrograph. He um, incorporated ground, um, brown glass into um, the white and pink paints around the figure, glass probably from a beer bottle. 
and he added generous amounts of palette scrapings to many of the final layers that are readily visible with the naked eye. Finally, he uh, mixed significant amounts, amounts of plaster of Paris into the upper white um, paints. Using this opaque white um, paint made bulkier with the addition of plaster of Paris, the artist built up the um, female's breasts, her um, multiple arms, and the star into almost sculptural masses. The black paint is one of the last applied. It's been identified as an Alcott house paint, and the artist diluted this paint to the consistency of a watercolor. As it ran down the picture surface in runnels, it stained the lower paints to grimy black. As in other works of the period, de Kooning rubbed charcoal into many of the paint surfaces, deliberately smearing black fibers into um, the brighter colors. Analytical evidence that de Kooning mixed plaster of Paris with his paints and used um, house paints is supported by testimonial and um, archival evidence. This 1950s uh, photograph of de Kooning's studio shows a box um, on the windowsill that has a rainbow label. And rainbow was a name of a, dry, a line of dry products uh, produced by a New, Z, a New Jersey um, company beginning in 1946. And they sold um, both plaster of Paris as well as pumice. Several can, cans of house paint with the Saplin label are also visible on the work table. Artist Patricia Pasloff, who studied with de Kooning for several years beginning in 1948, <coughs> excuse me, told me that um, de Kooning regularly mixed solid materials such as plaster of Paris with his um, paints to bulk them up and to extend his medium. Pasloff also confirmed that de Kooning um, bought his paints at a nearby hardware store and from another um, store that sold supplies for sign painters. She said that his choice reflected his familiarity with the property of these paints um, from his days as a house painter and a sign painter. Not only were these paints significantly less expensive than artist's oils, the artist reasoned that because they were designed for outdoor use, they should be extremely durable. Well, low cost and ready availability of plaster of Paris and house and sign paints undoubtedly did influence de Kooning's choice of materials. He also appears to have turned to them for different reasons. As has been shown earlier in the decade when he was equally poor, he produced paintings such as um, Queen of Hearts that were executed in um, artist oils and on smooth, carefully primed supports. At this stage of his career, the artist was clearly um, interested in certain uh, coarseness of materials and a freer uh, method of, of applying them that he felt was appropriate for his urban-inspired subject matter. Adapting materials intimately associated with the urban environment, plaster, charcoal, ground glass, quartz, fiberboard, pulpwood paper, inexpensive sign and house paints, as well as application practices that included dripping, scraping down, scoring, and smearing. De Kooning produced paintings that have been interpreted as visual metaphors for the gritty textures of the Lower East Side. Both de Kooning's wife Elaine and their friend and poet Edwin Denby recall that many of the shapes, colors, and textures of de Kooning's paintings of this period derive from observations made during long walks throughout the neighborhood late at night. 
and I'm quoting from Denby's poem, the sidewalk cracks, gum spots, the water, the bits of refuse. Yet visual clues to the local environment are purposely unspecified and um, equivocal. These paintings are informed by the artist's awareness that content or meaning had to be expressed through the paint itself. John McMahon, um, an artist who befriended de Cooney in the late 50s and who later became his studio assistant in the 60s, told me that when he and the artist attended an exhibition that included several works from the um, late 40s and the 50s, he uh, commented on their um, dirty surfaces and asked de Kooning if they shouldn't be sent to a, a, a conservator. De Kooning simply replied that they did not need to be cleaned, they were painted to look that way. The art that de Kooning produced after 1960s is sometimes considered a distinct body of work. As the New York paintings are infused with a feeling for the, of the city, so the East Hampton works convey a sense of water and light. De Kooning frequently acknowledged that working in the country had affected his art. Quote, I wanted to get back to a feeling of light in the painting. I wanted to get in touch with nature, not painting scenes from nature, but to get a feeling for it. Technical examination and analysis of works in um, the 1960s reveals that de Kooning continued many of his earlier practices as he simultaneously developed new techniques and adopted new materials as a means to convey his changed environment. From 1964 through 66, he produced a series of larger-than-life female images on hollow core doors. Woman's Hague Harbor, begun in 19, six, uh, June of 1964 and finished by the end of that year, was the first of the door paintings. Woman 65 was painted the following year. In both of these works, color plays a very different expressive role from the work of the 50s. De Kooning told Harold Rosenberg, critic Harold Rosenberg, that when he started um, coming to East Hampton, he was so moved by the, the North Atlantic light that he began creating his own colors to better be convey that light. In this 1962 port, um, photograph of de Kooning in his, um, the last studio he had in New York, um, when uh, he was actually still, he was spending more and more time in, in um, East Hampton, however, you can see that there are bowls on the ground filled with paint. By this time, the artist had begun to prepare preferred colored mixtures in quantity before he began to paint. Interestingly, the analysis of the paints in Woman's Hague Harbor and others of this decade reveals that none of them really are complex mixtures. Most of them are just one or two um, pigments, but often blended with large amounts of white to, cre and, uh, well, I won't, uh, to create pastel tones. The intensely colored reds and the maroons that you see here are pure pigments, but they're used rather sparingly. The paler pinks, oranges, and yellows are cadmium colors mixed with very, a very high percentage of white. Photographs and anecdotal references suggest that by the time de Kooning painted Woman's Egg Harbor, he had discontinued his use of um, house paints. Instead, he began adding safflower oil to his artist's tube paints. A 19, this 1971 photograph of de Kooning in his studio shows a bottle of Safflife safflower oil on the artist's work table. De Kooning actually acknowledged that he used this oil because, quote, it stays wet a long time. It doesn't dry like linseed oil. I can work longer. 
According to John McMahon, de Kooning prepared his paint mixtures from Bellini artist tube colors according to very specific recipes that he had developed. Once the, um, the artist uh, combined the desired number of tube paints on a glass palette, he would scoop them into the bowl and then he added safflower oil, water, and a solvent, whipping the ingredients with a brush until the mixture assumed a fluffy consistency. He didn't have a set formula for the addition of the safflower oil or the water. He did it until it had the right feel. De Kooning apparently experimented with a number of different vegetable oils, including poppy oil. He eventually consulted a chemist who assured him that he could safely add this oil to his paints. Medium analysis offers compelling evidence that corroborate these reports. No house paints were found in works after about 1962. Poppy oil was identified in several paintings of the early 1960. But safflower oil was identified in most of the samples of Woman's Egg Harbor as well as um, Woman's 65 and five additional works of this decade. And the um, identification was corroborated with um, standards that are two-year-old standards of uh, pigmented and unpigmented safflower oil that I, that I also ran. No cholesterol, a component of egg and mayonnaise, was detected in any of these samples. I bring this up because it was once um, fairly um, widely reported that de Kooning's unusual medium included mayonnaise. This is probably an extrapolation of Thomas Hess's vivid descriptions of the artist's temporary emulsion of oil and water as, quote, free and creamy in nature with the consistency of a good mayonnaise. This, um, de Kooning seems to have adopted or experimented with un this unorthodox paint formula as a means to apply and remove still more abundant amounts of paint. As we've seen, this is um, an old and um, well-tried pattern, reworking a painting over an extended period of time. But now with this medium, he could build up um, the paints into a significantly higher impasto and much more easily scrape the, the part of the paint or all of the paint back down to the ground, um, leaving few traces of the previous iteration. The greater liquidity and slipperiness of uh, de Kooning's binding medium and his, and his return to smooth, non-absorbent supports, um, often white in color, also allowed de Kooning to move his brush across the surface at a much faster pace. Everywhere the, eyes eye, the eye follows the rapid movement of the brush as it hit the panel where it skidded, twisted, and abruptly turned. Likewise, the artist worked with his rich, um, oil-rich paints in a true wet-into-wet -wet technique, the latter brush strokes dragging and blending the earlier ones to, to produce complex text textures and vivid colored mixtures on the, paint on the picture surface. De Kooning's friend Joan Ward remembers experimenting with the artist's medium and found it so slippery that, quote, she couldn't keep the brush on the canvas. In addition to the complex paint textures that de Kooning produced by the action of his brush, the surfaces of many of these paintings of this decade have developed peculiar circular craters or depressions and wrinkling. The craters in particular, excuse me, are a common feature 
As before, de Kooning seems to have consciously developed methods in response to his new surroundings. These circular crater-like formations in the paint were certainly formed as water and air bubbles from the temporary emulsion popped or collapsed as the paint was drying. De Kooning's method of working is graphically illustrated in this um, work, uh, Sphinx of 1964. It was created when de Kooning pressed a piece of paper against one of the door paintings, probably Woman's Egg Harbor, because the, the paintings are, I mean, the pigments are identical. The large um, voids in the paint surface of this oil transfer and other works of the period resulted when bubbles caught in the paint matrix um, burst during the transfer process. These voids are readily visible in this detail, but especially in this ultralight, um, ultraviolet light photograph. In 1964, the year in which both these um, Sphinx and, and uh, um, Woman's Egg Harbor were painted, de Kooning acknowledged that he was searching for a way to convey, this, to convey the very substance of water and even the most abstract images of this, these, this period are related in some way to his water-surrounded environment. He said, quote, I go on my bicycle down to the beach and search for a new image, and I love the puddles. When I see a puddle, I stare at it. Later, I don't paint a puddle, but the image that it calls up within me. Examination and technical analysis um, of the de Kooning's works, once he moved to Long Island, indicates that he alters, altered his procedures to accommodate his new surroundings. The supports of the paintings of the 1960s tend to be slick papers and smooth canvases or panels, often with a white ground. His colored pigments are admixed, admixed with high percentages of white to accentuate the luminous quality of his paints. Likewise, he experimented with different binding media. He used house paints infrequently, and then only during the early years of the decade. Rather, he began to add poppy oil, seed oil, and then safflower oil, mixing them with his artist paints with water and um, solvents. This unusual medium allowed him to work on a painting for a much um, longer period of time, and uh, with it he was um, able to develop daring unorthodox paint surfaces that have been compared to a water-drenched environment. In conclusion, evidence from this technical study has established that the artist did not select his materials randomly, nor solely because they were cheap. Rather, de Kooning made conscious artistic choices throughout his long career. Likewise, his paintings were not made exclusively with automatic or arbitrary gestures. Rather, he knew his materials well and consciously deliberated the methods of applying them. Technical study of de Kooning's painting for the 1940s and 50s compared with those of the 1960s reveal not an abrupt repudiation of his past practices, but subtle, thoughtful modifications through which he shifted his materials and his methods to reflect his new surroundings. Just as de Kooning altered his painting materials and his methods of applying them to accommodate his injury, his imagery, he also demonstrated um, long-lasting preferences for certain procedures that lead him to traditional practices. He usually applied his paints with brushes um, to his supports, and the supports more often than not in a vertical position. 
Additionally, uh, he maintained a lifelong working method based on a symbiotic exchange between drawing and painting. At least since the 1940s and probably early, he st earlier, he studied his compositions while in progress in a process of continual reworking. Finally, de Kooning consistently worked with oil-based paints throughout his career, whether they were artist paints, house, or sign. Unlike many of his colleagues, he had never experimented with the quick-drawing synthetic resin paints that were becoming readily available. Perhaps because he was a consummate draftsman, was an artist who consistently worked with oil paints, and who, who openly acknowledged that he, that he synthesized traditional practices with the modern, de Kooning has been described as the most conservative of the abstract expressionists. He also has been credited as the artist who, more than any of his other colleagues, extended the painterly tradition in art to become, as art historian Dory Ashton said, a painting wizard. Thank you. Does anybody, does anybody have any questions? Oh, no. Forty-eight, nineteen forty-eight. Yeah, oh, is the woman nineteen forty-eight? I don't know, Clark. I'm a conservator. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to ask. <laughs> Sounds good. I do know that I do know that there was discussion of how important Guernica was to these artists, including the Cooney. Yeah, there's a there's a section in the book. I just I didn't get into this, but um, there is a, a section in which we, um, um, Michael Schilling and I uh, from the Getty, do analyze, especially the works of the 1960s, and um, most of many of those works actually uh, the paint is still soft. The paint has a skin, um, but if you penetrate that skin, it's still taffy-like and gooey in, inside. Um, and buy the book because um, it goes into that. The works actually are in remarkably good condition, but they must be very carefully um, kept out of a dust, a dusty environment, and uh, nothing should touch their surfaces. There, you know, de Kooning um, later became aware that cooking oil wasn't the same as safflower oil, which is used um, into paints, but dryers are added. And he was made uh, aware of that and, and felt horrible for a quite, in fact, he stopped painting for almost a year and uh, started drinking again and then uh, developed uh, a very different style in the late 70s. 
Um, the work, the house paint um, of the 40s, actually those works also are in very good condition, especially if they're on solid supports. Again, you have to be careful not to clean the surfaces. They shouldn't be cleaned. But um, he knew his materials well, even as he experimented with them. No. Yeah, that actually is part of the problem. The, there's, uh, I don't uh, want to get too technical, but there's saponification taking place in the paint and a breaking, a breaking up, and it prob water probably is. It's the, um, the paints that have zinc are white, have a lot of white, actually have dried fairly well. It's the um, paints that don't have white that have stayed um, gooey and soft. Yeah. What? Yeah, I think. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great collection. Is there anything in studying them that you were frustrated at not being able to capture? When you have these little plastic techniques that were disposable, is there anything? It's not what I wasn't able to ascertain. It was. Um, to examine a painting to the, in the depth that I did with the Hirshhorn, if you go to another institution, it's much more difficult to, to do that. So um, we don't have um, as many works of the 1950s as would have been uh, nice to see. So um, MoMA actually has, ha has an upcoming retrospective um, of uh, de Kooning in 1912. And so I'm getting an opportunity to see those works that I didn't have access to. That was the frustrating part. Yeah. When you finished analyzing the cross section, did you put it back in, or was there a result? Uh, <laughs> no, it's in kind of a chunk of resin <laughs> that wouldn't look good on the painting. <laughs> but it's so small. So you don't put anything Oh, you wouldn't be able to see it with your naked eye there. You're very, very careful to take it from an edge or an area of loss. You wouldn't. I think those of you who have done it would confirm that you, you wouldn't notice. And you do it very judiciously, very carefully. <laughs> no scalpels. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you look at, just think of the other abstract expressionists, um, Pollock, uh, applying paints directly to the floor. I think he's most, maybe like, most like Franz Klein, especially certain periods, and, and kind of the, the gestural. Um, he shares, he's, um, he shares some of his materials with Mark Rothko, and um, there's a series of technical studies that have been done on Mar uh, Rothko's use of house paints and how those works have, have uh, faded very badly. So um, he's the gestural side of the abstract expressionist movement. And so I, I think um, Franz Klein is what, who, and the others, they're really, I mean, they're considered a group, but their styles are extremely diverse.
Yeah, actually there's been a fair amount of study of, about this. These are, um, Melanie, help me here. <laughs> These are um, free fatty acids. Um, and in many, in more traditional paints, that's an indication of a breakdown. But, um, of the paint structure, but in modern paints, these are often added to as a means of, of facilitating the grinding process. And so these are evaporations, a natural process of evaporating, um, or um, yeah, coming to the surface. And if the work is not um, under glass, you don't, it just goes away or can sometimes um, crystallize on the surface. But if it's under glass, it um, condenses on the back, under the underside. And you see these kind of ghost-like images that are a mirror. It's, it's common in, in, um, in oil painting. It's just um, only recently that we've been able to analyze and identify it. Um, Clifford Still. We're working on, um, a group of us are working on Clifford Still. And uh, hopefully um, the publication will be ready sometime around the time that um, the museum opens in Denver. No, it's the Clifford Still Estate, which is huge. Thank you. <laughs>